chapter 30, verse 31. Another parable he put forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed into his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs, and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Another parable spake he unto them, The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, or yeast, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till the whole was leavened. I'd like to speak to you tonight on the advancing church. The advancing church. God bless you. You may be seated. January 4, I preached on I am a church member and we've been playing that note every service since then. Last Wednesday night, I spoke on the mutual benefits of the church that we are to grow up into Him in all things and I spent a good bit of time from Ephesians 4.16 about the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by every by, every, by that which every joint supplieth and how the body strengthens, heals, and builds up itself. I close my message talking about the lady in the New Testament book of Acts chapter 9, Tabitha or Dorcas, and how she had a pretty background role in the early church. She just made garments for widows. But when she died, what she did was so important that they appealed to the Apostle Peter on the basis of her good works that she would be resurrected from the dead. While certainly no one deserves a miracle, Dorcas or Tabitha was raised from the dead, which is very exciting to me to see how such an obscure personality would find her place in the sacred record of the Scripture. This past Sunday, a couple, three days ago, I spoke on a glorious church that Jesus is coming back for. And I addressed that passage in the sense of its prophecy that He would present the church to Himself as a glorious church, not an anemic, gnarled, and all those other words that start with G that I used, just to kind of set up the idea that God's church that will exist when He comes back will be a glorious church. Amen. So I believe and am committed to the glorious church church. And I believe according to scripture, I've alluded to this in the last few weeks, that this church is an advancing church. My purpose tonight is to show you by the scriptures that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the kingdom of God in the earth, is always advancing, moving forward, and taking new territory. Now the Bible said that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. What I believe about God comes from what I've heard, read, and believed from His Holy Word. Faith comes that way. The writer of Hebrews said that the Old Testament church, even though there was something preached to them, it did not profit them because it was not mixed with faith. So it is one thing to hear. It is another thing to believe, embrace, and act on what you've heard. So what I'm saying about the church tonight 
is important because what we believe about the church will affect what we do about the church. If we believe the church is going into darkness and decline, we're likely to just hold on for the ride down. If we believe that the church is going to experience this mysterious, mystical, fallacious, great falling away, then we're likely to embrace that idea and just either accept it or try to keep from being one of those who fall away. And there will be a falling away, but the word great is not in the text of the Bible. But if we believe the prevailing evidence of Scripture that this is a glorious church that Jesus is presenting to Himself, then we'll do what we can to advance the church, the kingdom of God in the earth. Now the church has always faced resistance of various forms and one of those forms is marginalization to try to speak of the church in terms that there's really not much there. Just a handful of people. They're ignorant anyway, uneducated, poor, and they don't matter at all. Painted as the immoral minority by some people instead of the moral majority. Portrayed as bigots, Christians viewed as judgmental and out of touch with society. Now we have experienced something in our city in the past few weeks of the firing of a fire chief, a stunning article that was written yesterday in the New York Times about that incident and basically saying that Christians don't belong in places of leadership because we're bigoted. Because this fire chief, who would be considered a minority himself, an African-American, wrote a book entitled, Who Told You You Were Naked? He, gave, he got permission, which the New York Times said he did not. He gave it to friends at church who he also worked with, and then he was fired for his virulent anti-gay views when in fact it only mentions homosexuality twice and in the context of Bible teaching. So what we need to understand in our day is that Christianity is under attack to make you and I feel like we're the wackos, that there's something wrong with us because we believe in the Word of God and we stand on truth. I thank God that people marched into Mayor Reed's office. There were 50,000 names on petitions from people across the nation who are standing up against that. But I just want to say that there's nothing new about that. The Hebrew boys faced persecution when King Nebuchadnezzar said, I'll give you another chance to bow down to this image. When the music starts, you bow. They didn't hesitate. They said, we are not careful to answer you in this matter. We don't have to think about where we stand on worship. We don't have to think about where we stand on morality and who we serve. They said, we will serve God. We will not bow down. And our God is able to deliver us. And we know one thing, whether through the fire or not, He will deliver you us from your hands. But if not, I like that. No matter what happens, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. 
There may be just three of us in the kingdom and add Daniel over here, but we will not bow down. Amen. I want to just encourage you that we are standing in an onslaught of the, against an onslaught of the church, but we need that kind of a mindset. Because underneath the radar of the world, the church is ever advancing and taking new territory. I like the attitude of the apostles after the healing of the layman at the gate beautiful. They said these were ignorant and unlearned men, but they've been with Jesus. They saw the healed man, and they really didn't know what to say, so they went aside and conferred among themselves. And they said, what shall we do to these men? A notable, I want you to notice this. Privately, they acknowledged the miracle. A miracle's been performed. Everybody knows it. And we know it. And we cannot deny it, Acts 4.16 says. But then they said, but that it spread no further. We want to kind of shut this down. But that it spread no further among the people. Let us straightly threaten them. We're going to threaten them. That they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called them in. And with a very straight authoritative face, they said... They commanded them to not speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus. So there. We're in charge. No more preaching in Jesus' name. So, of course, the apostles said, well, you know, got to obey them that have the rule over you. And they're in civil authority. Romans 13 talks about that. Except when it goes against the scripture, right? <clears throat> And their answer is an appeal to a higher authority. Peter and John answered and said unto them, them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge you. You decide who has the highest authority. But we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Well, they didn't quiet down. And the second time, the pressure is ratcheted up. They call the apostles back in Acts 5, 28, after they've been delivered from prison. And they said, Did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in that name? I like that. We don't want to really say it, but that name. And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and to intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Notice the deletion of the name Jesus in Acts 5.28. Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The council met and wanted to kill them. But there was an intervention by Gamaliel. Really, perhaps bad advice, but it worked. But in the end... They called the apostles, they beat them, threatened them, and commanded that they would not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And the apostles, they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. That did not stop the church. Threatening, imprisonment, beating did not stop the church. 
In Acts 5, it became illegal to preach in the name of Jesus, but the church thrived in that environment of opposition and oppression. We are called to follow Jesus Christ, to know Him and to make Him known to the world. And if that is in a climate of approval or one of conflict, it makes no difference. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Amen? And the church has always advanced no matter what climate, in, in, in no matter which climate we are placed. I want to show you today from the Bible uh, what is said about the kingdom of God in our dispensation. We are in an age where the kingdom of God is advancing. The Great Commission was given by Jesus Christ and all four Gospels contain a slice of it, words of Jesus Christ recorded by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I want to just give a synopsis of them without drilling down too deeply. But I want you to notice Matthew 28, 19, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. He sent them out. Mark 16, he said, And this go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He spoke about the signs that would accompany them in Mark 16. In Luke 24, 47, he said in that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem and you are witnesses of these things and he sent them back to wait for the Holy Ghost in Jerusalem. In the book of John, John chapter 20, John, Jesus said, Peace be unto you. As my Father has sent me, even so send I you. He breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. This fourfold presentation of the Great Commission tells us that the gospel is destined to go to the entire earth, the ends of the earth. Jesus restates it in Acts chapter 6, but you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. In other words, this scripture in Acts 1 and 8 is a recap, but it is a prophecy. You're going to receive power, and you're going to go, and you're going to go to the uttermost part of the earth. It will start with Jerusalem, your city. It will spread to Judea, your province. It will bleed over into Samaria, a neighboring province with a different culture, and it will spread to the uttermost part of the earth. That is the commission, that is the destiny of the church. This was prophetic that it would happen just as Jesus commanded them to go. All throughout the Bible, the church is presented as an advancing army and force in the earth. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, a prophecy of the Messiah.
For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Just in case anybody doesn't get this, but the child born and the son given will be the everlasting Father come in flesh. Not a second person in the Godhead, but God Himself, Emmanuel, God with us. The Prince of Peace. Verse 7. Of the increase, everybody please say increase. Of the increase of His government and peace, there shall be no end. From the time that Jesus comes, His government, His rule will increase and it's probably an application of this that the more the government of God increases in your life, the more the peace of God increases in your life. Amen? And where there is no rule of God, there is no peace of God. But Isaiah 9 and 7 says that of his, the increase that will continue to increase throughout human history. In Isaiah 54, I'll just allude to this. I love the prophecy about the barren wife who's going to break forth on the left hand and the right hand. And they're to enlarge the place of their tent and stretch forth the curtains of their habitations. And Isaiah 54, 2, the Lord, the prophet shall spare not which means don't think too small when you plan for future growth. I really didn't plan to get carried away on Isaiah 54. But that's what he said to them. All you got is mom and pop. You never had any kids. Now I'm prophesying you're going to have children. And probably your greatest faith is for one or two. But God says... I don't want you to I want you to spare not. I don't want you to clear about a little 10 by 10 place for a little bit bigger pup tent for you and your wife and one baby. He said I want you to think big. You're going to break forth on the left hand and on the right and your seed shall inherit the Gentiles and you will make the desolate cities to be inhabited. That is a prophecy. You can study it when you get home. It is a prophecy of the church. Your seed will inherit the Gentiles. That prophecy is a prophecy of the church. That we are living in a time of the expansion of the kingdom of God. This glorious church and it has no end of the increase of its government. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, sees a vision. This image, he tells Daniel... Daniel begins to repeat the vision and interpret what he sees. Daniel 2.31 Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible or awesome. This image, his head was of fine gold, his breast and arms were silver, belly and thighs of brass. Legs of iron, feet part of iron, part of clay. And you saw, you saw this image. 
till a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and brake them in pieces. Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, you see these, this image. And this image represents world empires. Babylon, Medio Persia, Greece, Rome, and the revived Roman Empire. But there was this little stone cut out without hands. It's just a little tiny stone, kind of insignificant. But it breaks this in pieces. And the iron, clay, brass, silver, gold, broken in pieces together. They all become like chaff, lighter than air, of the summer threshing floors. And are carried away till there's no place found for them. It's as if they never existed. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. He said, I want to interpret that for you. He said, King, you're that head of gold. And he goes through this whole prophecy to him. One kingdom is going to follow another. And this fourth one will be strong as iron. Verses 41 to 44 give the detail of that. But look at Daniel 2.44. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. There will not be a successor kingdom to this kingdom. But it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. Daniel said, because of what you saw, this stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands, that break in pieces, the iron, brass, clay, silver, the great God of heaven has made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. The dream is certain and the interpretation thereof is sure. I am glad that I do not identify myself with the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, the Roman Empire, or the future revived Roman Empire. But we are part of the kingdom that is cut out of the mountain without hands, that will never be destroyed, that will survive forever. I want you to understand tonight that you're not a part of something Fancy or, excuse me, that is flighty or just a passing fancy. But we are part of something that will stand forever. Most of us are familiar with the prophecy of Joel chapter 2, 28. And it shall come to pass afterwards, saith God, that I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids. In those days will I pour out of my spirit. The apostle Peter interpreted this in Acts chapter 2. When he said this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. What Joel said would happen just did happen. And this is the beginning of the last days. And God will pour out His Spirit upon all flesh. He will have an anointed church, not just prophets and priests and a few special people here and there, but servants, handmaids, young men, old men. It's going to be sons and daughters. This is going to be a kingdom that is advancing. Amen. 
when Gabriel spoke to Mary, Mary said, Fear not, thou hast found favor with God. You'll conceive in your womb, bring forth a son. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of thy father David on the screens. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. I'm glad to be connected to the kingdom of God in the earth. And Peter, after he said, repent and be baptized every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Went on to say, for the promise is unto you. And to your children. And to all that are afar off. Ties into Jesus saying the uttermost part of the earth. Every area of the globe. Every culture, kindred, tribe, tongue. And every generation till the Lord comes back again. Amen. As many as the Lord our God shall call. Now there's a scripture that speaks about the fullness of the Gentiles coming in. And there will be a day. I don't know how God will manage it, what is in His mind, but the Bible said there is the fullness of the Gentiles. When the church age will be over and the church will be raptured out. Amen. And the end time program will begin. And eventually onto a millennial kingdom and eternity. But that is the continuation of the kingdom of God. We are part of the kingdom of God. It is in an age of mystery or of the spirit. The kingdom of God does not come by observation, Jesus said. You can't see, say low here or low there. For the kingdom of God is within you. We are not in the age of the kingdom where our king is on a visible throne working in a capital city of the world. But he rules in the hearts of his church. He is the head of his body. Amen. And this kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. I mentioned Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Judea, Samaria, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost part of the earth. And Jesus said, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Jesus taught on the advancing kingdom of God. And he taught on it some in parables. And I want to talk about those parables tonight. A parable is a literary device that is used to teach by means of transference. So in order to make it possible to discover a truth in an unknown realm... Something familiar is used and then the principles are transferred from the known realm to the unknown realm. Typically, when Jesus uses parables, 
there is one central theme or point to be made and it is not wise to try to apply every little point of the parable. The disciples asked Jesus, why do you teach in parables? And Jesus said in Matthew 13, starting in verse 10, when they asked him this, he said, because it's given for you to understand the principles or the mysteries of the kingdom. But unto them who do not want to believe, it is not given for them to understand. Because they have eyes they see not, they have ears they hear not, they don't understand with their heart. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. So Jesus taught in parables, and he would often interpret them or apply them privately with the disciples. But not everyone who heard understood. I want to just make a little point here that there are people who can hear the Word of God and never comprehend it, never grasp it, because they have a closed mind to truth. I love what is said of the noble Bereans, I believe in Acts 17, that they received the Word of God with all readiness of mind and open mind, and they searched the Scriptures daily to see whether those things were so. Paul was teaching, they had an open mind, but they went back to the source, which was the Bible, with their Old Testament, to see if what Paul was saying was really true. Jesus taught truth by parables on more than one occasion. For example, Jesus taught, I am the door, or some translations would say the gate, I am the door of the sheep. Everyone that came before me were thieves and robbers. I am the door. If any man comes by me and enters in, he'll be saved. Well, if you want to understand what that means, you have to understand what a door is and what a door does. Right? So it's a simple parable, but if you want to know what Jesus meant by that, you have to say, well, what is a door or a gate? It's a point of entry. And if it's not open, you can't go in. And if it's open, you can go in. And Jesus taught in that parable, I am the point of entry of the kingdom of God. And if anybody wants in the kingdom of God, they've got to come in by me. There is no other entry point into the kingdom of God. And if the door is open, you can enter. And if it's shut, you're shut out. So we understand what Jesus meant by that parable. In Matthew 13, Jesus teaches a number of parables, maybe eight parables, and uh, one in Mark that some people would pull into this context, about eight parables on the kingdom of God. I want to cover two, so I don't think I'm going to do all eight. But in verses 3 to 9, the parable of soils, and then he interprets that later. Uh, then he speaks about the weeds or the tares among the wheat in that parable. There are other parables that he talks about later, after what I'm going to uh, teach about tonight. Treasure hid in the field, the pearl of great price, the dragnet that pulls in all kinds of fish and you sort it out when you get them to shore. And then the parable of the householder where he brings out some old and some new vessels which is an intriguing parable that in the kingdom of God there are some old principles that follow over from the Old Testament and some new truths introduced in the new. Those are all taught in Matthew 13. But I want you to go to Matthew 13, 
31 and 32 with these two parables. First, the parable of the mustard seed. Everybody there say amen. Another parable put he forth unto them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs and becometh a tree. So the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Now, everybody already knows what this means, right? It's very simple. The kingdom of heaven is very tiny and inconspicuous and unassuming. and Nobody gives it much hope. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. It is like a teeny little mustard seed. And you can read and study the history of this. It's probably not the same as our mustard greens that we grow here in the south and like very much. Alfred Edersheim said it was a small mustard seed, proverbial in use. And that day, if you wanted to talk about something that was really tiny or insignificant, you said it was like a mustard seed. That was your way of saying it was insignificant or really small. They used to talk about that of the least drop of blood or the smallest amount of anything or a tiny glow of the sunlight. That was the mustard seed. This mustard seed Jesus spoke about grew really large came from a really tiny seed. So much so that it grew a stalk and branches and it was so big that birds could come and roost in that tree. It grows from a tiny seed to a large shrub or a tree. I don't think an oak tree, but large for what it came from. Well, Jesus is making a simple point, right? That this insignificant little seed is like the kingdom of God. Nobody would give it much of a chance at all, but when it's grown, it's going to be really, really big, shockingly big. And then Jesus said, let me tell you another parable. It's a parable of yeast or leaven. This is in verse 33. The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, everybody say yeast, which a woman took and hid and three measures of meal, till the whole was leaven. So, some of you automatically, when you hear the word leaven, think leaven is bad. Because Jesus said, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of some leaven, but really leaven is used in the Bible, both positively and negatively. Leaven refers to a tendency that is working invisibly. Something's happening, but you can't see it. That's pretty cool about the kingdom of God. You see something happening to the dough, but you really don't know how it's taking place. It's fairly inconspicuous, silent. It's about not so much the nature of the leaven, this parable, it's not so much about the nature of the leaven, but it demonstrates how leaven works. Because the kingdom of heaven is like leaven put in dough or put in meal. Every baker knows about leavened bread. Three measures of dough or of meal was evidently about the amount of bread that would be made for an average family back in that day. And when yeast was introduced into that meal, 
something, you know, of course, started happening. The active yeast began a slow, continuous, and irreversible process of leavening. And it didn't stop until the entire loaf was changed forever. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that is hidden in meal. It would be not established by overt or outward means. Not going to set up a capital and a kingdom and a visible throne. There's no external force. Nobody's going to hold a gun to your head and say, believe in Jesus or else. The days of the Crusades were not the way Jesus taught to evangelize the world. Right? This kingdom, Jesus says, that I'm introducing is going to operate by an internal force. It's going to be progressive, continuous, until all the earth has been changed by the effect of my kingdom. This parable speaks of the work of the Holy Ghost in the earth. It happens a lot. In church, while I might be preaching or somebody else, here is a person that is sitting here in the congregation. And while they may have no visible sign of what's going on on the outside, something is working on them to begin to change them. And hopefully it is still working on all of us to continue to change all of us as well. Amen? Somebody reads a little scripture, For God so loved the world. And from that one scripture, faith can spring in the heart and the Holy Ghost begin to work with the Word of God and change that person in every way. Now the kingdoms of this world are built on power. Military might typically or economic strength. Babylon, that head of gold in Nebuchadnezzar's image was built by force and power. But it didn't last forever because the Medo-Persian Empire came along and crushed that empire. Medo-Persian Empire, you would think that it would last forever, but Alexander the Great and his Greek armies came with their military prowess and they took the Medo-Persians out and they established the Grecian Empire. The Greek Empire was strong, built on philosophy, military might, But that steel kingdom, that kingdom of iron, the Roman Empire came and by military might destroyed the Grecian Empire. History is built on empires, one succeeding another, whoever displays the greatest power. But the kingdom of God in this age is not expressed by overt military, political, or economic power. From the beginning, it is insignificant, but it has gone through a process of development that has permanently and irreversibly changed the world. Think about it. This kingdom starts with one man who is born of a woman accused of fornication. He's accused of being an illegitimate child. He's from the province of Galilee, not Judea, they think, even though he's born in Bethlehem. He never owns a home. 
He never lives past 33 years of age. Never marries, never has children. The Bible said he's cut off from out of the land of the living and he shall declare his generation, referring to the fact that he had no children, no progeny. He grows up like a root out of a dry ground. He has no form nor comeliness. There's no beauty in him that we should desire him. He has a small, small band of followers who struggle with their faith and struggle with their ego and struggle with their commitment. The founder dies, is buried, and allegedly raises from the dead. We know the truth. At the first business meeting, after he is ascended, there's only 120 people there. And they pray for several days. And on the birthday of their organization, there's still only 120 at first. They have no money, no buildings. Peter said, silver and gold have I none, just for the record. They have no support from the government, no support from organized religion. They are minimalized, marginalized, threatened, beaten, jailed, martyred, scattered and smothered like hash browns at Waffle House. but they will not go away. 120, 3,000, 5,000, multitudes. You filled Jerusalem with our doctrine. These that have turned the world upside down have come hither also. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost part of the earth. The church lives to be 100, institutionalized at 300. It survives the dark ages. It is revitalized in 1901 and it explodes and permeates Christianity as I preached about on Sunday till today they say over half a billion tongue talkers in the world. And just as those early Christians did not mind carrying the gospel down roads that Roman pagans built. We don't mind using whatever resources at our disposal to take the whole gospel to the whole world by the whole church. It is the advancing kingdom. There's an organization called the Pew Research Company. And on their religion and public life report from 2012, they give statistics back to 2010. A comprehensive demographic study of more than 200 countries finds, and let me before I say what it finds, I'm going to talk now about the number of people who claim Christianity. I'm not speaking in this context of people who are apostolic yet. I'll get to that in a few minutes. But I want you to just think about this. Today, there are over 2.18 billion Christians of all ages around the world. They represent, we represent nearly a third of the 2010 global population of 6.9 billion. It started with the single man, and on their birthday, they're 120. Now, here's the good news to me. If 2.18 billion have done anything to say I love Jesus, that gives me hope 
that they would receive the Holy Ghost and according to statistics, about a fourth of that 2.18 billion do talk in tongues. And when the Spirit of truth comes, He'll lead and guide to all truth. That gives me hope that we're about four people away from all two billion of them that claim Jesus in some measure. They're not on any single continent or region. No place can claim to be the global center of Christianity anymore. A century ago, two-thirds of the world's Christians lived in Europe where the bulk of Christians had been for a thousand years. But according to estimates for the Center for the Study of Global Christianity, today only about 25% of Christians live in Europe, 26% actually. A plurality, more than a third, now live in the Americas, 37%, which counts the United States and the New World. About one in every four Christians live in sub-Saharan Africa. And about one in eight is found in Asia and the Pacific. I like what Jesus said to Nicodemus. He said, the wind blows where it listeth, where it wants to. You hear the sound thereof, but you cannot tell where it's coming from or where it is going. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. I heard a man say one time that you cannot quarantine the wind. You can't lock it up and lock it down. And Paul said, the Word of God is not bound. It went behind the iron curtain. It's behind the bamboo curtain. People are receiving the Holy Ghost in record numbers in 2015. I'm talking about the advancing church. We may only have a small share in what God is doing, but I want to pray for a great share. I want to pray for a bigger mindset to believe that we are part of the greatest force in the earth. So why don't we just go for it? The number of Christians around the world has quadrupled in 100 years. That's the good news, from 600 million to more than 2 billion. But the world population has grown from 1.8 billion to 6.9 billion. We're actually not keeping pace, 32% today compared to 35% a century ago. But in this last century, just think about, think about what it would have been like to be in Jerusalem when they looked at you and said, don't preach or teach it all in that name. You intend to bring this man's blood on us. They could have said, oh, well, I guess we can't do that. I guess we better hunker down and hope for the coming of Jesus right away. So we better hold on for dear life and hope we can just make it to the bitter end. But that's not the church I read about in the Bible. Dr. Talmadge French, pastor of Apostolic Tabernacle in Jonesboro, he's preached here before. He's a scholar, has a doctorate in original or ancient languages. He's told this to us at a district conference on Monday evening. I text him today to confirm the number. He has identified in his latest book 32.6 million apostolic people. We're talking about people who have obeyed Acts 2.38 in the world today. That's how many we know. 2.18 billion people who say, I'm a Christian. Half a billion, at least, 
who say, I talk in tongues across all denominational lines. 32 point, whatever I just said, 32.6 million apostolics. And growing every day. But the kingdom of God, it often starts in local contexts like it did in the Bible. And as I'm wrapping this point up, I'd like the worship team to come. It often, you know, is subject to scorn and it's minuscule. Sometimes the kingdom of God is like a prayer meeting in a home. Or it could be a preaching point in a home or a storefront somewhere. You know, you see these little signs all around Douglas County especially. You'll see a little teeny church in a storefront. You'll think, well, what in the world is that little thing there? Well, don't despise not the day of small things. Small beginnings. This church started in a basement, 1961. So sometimes the churches like this, you know, might be a home missions church like Bremen meeting in an old pharmacy that we rent. Church of less than 20 members meeting in a basement. But that is still the church. And I want to make a couple statements of application to all of us. I don't think I have to restate the case I've just made biblically. Growth is promised. The kingdom is promised to advance. But it is not automatic. It's not just going to happen while we sit back and say, Oh, well, we believe what our pastor said. So we'll just case, rah, rah, whatever will be, will be. Jesus is going to do it on his own. Because Jesus gave us an injunction to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So if he would have not needed us to go, he would have just said, stay, I'll take care of it for you. But I just want to remind you that we are commissioned to go. The gospel has always been a going movement. Not on autopilot, not just happening by some supernatural force. I know people that say, I just believe in a sovereign move of God. I believe in a sovereign move of God after we've done everything we can. And God just comes in and says, nice try kids, watch this. That's what I believe. Because I believe the Bible that said, go, go to the highways, hedges, go to everybody, compel them to come in. Too many scriptures say, go, for us to just sit and wait. All right? So you believe that. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. So we're the light of the world. We're just the light of the world. But then he said, let your light so shine before men. Because you are the light of the world. Get out from under the bushel. Quit hiding out. Quit not wanting anybody to know who you are. Like you're just some little weird group over here. You're the church. You're the glorious church. You're the advancing church. That's who you are. So we need to be a city that is set on the hill and we need to let our light so shine before men that they can see our good works. And then Jesus said something else. He said, we saw the multitudes, Matthew chapter 9, had compassion on them. They fainted, were scattered like sheep without a shepherd. He looked at his disciples and said, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. There's a bunch of lost people ready to come into the kingdom of God. There's no lack of 
for prospects. Jesus said to them, pray. Now this is the most unique scripture to me. I don't want to say in the Bible. Here is God in flesh telling you to pray that He will send people. That's like saying, I want you to ask me if I'll ask you to go. Pray the Lord of the harvest that He would send forth labors. In other words, this is not just a sovereign God acting unilaterally. He could if He wanted to. But He chose to not operate that way. He chose to work through His body, the church. So He said, I want you to go, but I also want you to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers. So not only can we go, that we, but we can pray that others will go. It is the prayer request of Jesus Christ to the church. Would you stand right now, please? Amen. We can believe what I've just taught, preached, but we need to make ourselves important to the mission by going and by praying. I truly believe that God is awakening His church to our identity. And I know that we are the only hope of the world. And we are certainly God's only plan for salvation. So tonight, we can't go at this instant, but I would like for us to come and I would like for us to pray the Lord of the harvest that He would send laborers. So would you join me at this altar? Our altar call tonight is going to be very specific. When we gather, we're going to pray that He will send forth laborers into the harvest. Amen. Labors into the harvest. People in ministry, but not just ministry in the church, but harvesting lost people out of the world and bringing them into the kingdom of God. That's going to be our prayer tonight. Amen. As we come, we're going to pray in just a moment. Amen.